0: Corinthians. First we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Both of these are these readings are chosen in connection with the Lord's Day for this afternoon which deals with the topic of uh, who are to come to the Lord's table, and how is the table to be supervised or shepherded or fenced. And so we turn to Scripture to see what Scripture would teach about these things. So first, we go to 1 Corinthians 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing." If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So far from 1 Corinthians 5, let's also turn a few pages forward to chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. Beginning then in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So far, the Word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 123, stanza 1. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith to consider what Scripture teaches about various uh, doctrines that are essential and basic to the Christian faith. This afternoon we find ourselves in Lord's Day 30, that's on page 545 of your books of praise. We'll be considering the second half of this Lord's Day. This is our last sermon in in our series on the sacraments. And so we'll look at question answer 81 and 82, that's page 546. There the question is, Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent, eat and drink judgment upon themselves." Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. So far the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned, this is our last sermon in the series on the sacraments. And in the past few weeks, we've looked at at the Lord's Supper in, in great detail, taking Our our study, even even more slowly than the catechism itself takes it, to be able to look at each of these questions in in great detail. This afternoon, we want to consider one last question, something that makes us as a Canadian Reformed Church somewhat distinct in Protestant and Evangelical churches of our day. And that is the, the question of fencing the Lord's table, or in other words, supervising who may come and who may not? Uh, you might not be familiar with, with the way that uh, other churches do things, but our way of doing things as, as a federation is somewhat unusual. It can be offensive to the point even of being scandalous to many Christians and many visitors when they discover that there are churches that do not let them partake of the Lord's Supper unless they come with the proper credentials, and, and were one of those churches. Uh, R. Scott Clark, a, a, a professor at Westminster Seminary in California, he explained the phenomenon this way. He said, Americans, he's writing in California, of course, Americans, or at least American evangelicals, are an autonomous, egalitarian, rebellious, and independent lot. And I would add that's just as true of Canadian evangelicals. It's a fundamental assumption, he writes, of American evangelicals that having entered into a personal private relationship with the risen Christ, they are therefore entitled to commune in any and every visible institutional church that they like. John Wesley said that the world was his parish, but American evangelicals seem to believe that the world is their congregation. They may be members of no visible church, at least none that any self-respecting Reformed congregation should recognize, but they consider it their birthright to act as if they are members of all congregations, even if they submit to the discipline of none, and certainly not to the congregation where they hope to commune, End quote. In other words, modern Americans and modern Canadian Christians assume that they have the right to participate in the Lord's Supper at any church that they go to, whether or not they even belong to a particular church themselves or submit to any kind of Christian authority themselves. Now, we're not just spending an afternoon on this topic simply in order to justify why we do what we do as a church. Uh, The reason this is worth our attention, besides simply avoiding making a scene on, on Lord's Supper Sunday, is because there are important principles behind this that are at play, principles that we need to understand as a church. And that's why the Catechism also includes this discussion uh, in, in this Lord's Day. There's two main questions involved here. The first question is, who should partake and who should not? And the second question is, what role does the church, namely the elders, have in enforcing who should partake and who should not? You can see that the catechism itself divides uh, this part of the Lord's Day into those two pieces, who should come and how should the church enforce it. We've seen in the past several weeks that the Lord Jesus instituted the supper for his disciples, and that's, that's very important. Uh, there, there are many, many scenes in, in all of the Gospels where the Lord Jesus sits down with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. He, he was very willing to, to spend time with them and to teach them uh, to the point that he was accused of, of being a little too close to them by the religious authorities of his day. But the Lord Jesus did not institute the Lord's Supper with them. He instituted the Lord's Supper in a personal, private setting, only with his disciples. And the implication is clear. The Lord's Supper is a meal for Christians and only for Christians, not just for anybody. So, the Supper is for Christians, and all Christians should come. But we can see from our reading in in 1 Corinthians that Christians must also come with the right frame of mind. The situation in Corinth was was just an absolute mess. It's the perfect picture of a church that has gone off the rails in in seemingly just about every respect. One of the most amazing things really about the letter to the Corinthians is that, given all the problems that you find in, in the letter to the Corinthians it's amazing that Paul still starts the letter by saying to the saints in Corinth. It's probably more charitable than most of us would be by by calling them saints. But of course that that sainthood is is one that is obtained through the righteousness of Christ. Well in chapter eleven, the, the main issue at hand is how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Uh, now, we need to understand that in that day, as for the first several centuries of, of Christianity, the Lord's Supper was celebrated as a meal. It, it would, the, the breaking of the bread and, and the, the pouring out of the wine was done at the opening of the meal. The problem, though, was that the Corinthians apparently had a, a BYOF policy, bring your own food And the result was the more well-to-do members would would bring lots of food, a full five-course dinner, while they allowed the poorer members to go hungry. Well, Paul rebukes them sharply for this practice. And and the verses that we especially want to pay attention to are in verses 23 through, through 29, where Paul emphasizes that when the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He centered it, the institution, on those words, this is my body. And then Paul says a few verses later, we must therefore discern the body of the Lord. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself well there's a few phrases in there that we want to focus on and especially the phrase or the word body Paul uses that word in in two senses, and, and they're both important for what he's saying. On the one hand, he's referring to the bread and the wine. They are symbols of Christ's body and blood. And so he's saying when he says you ought to discern the body, he means you should partake of the Lord's Supper while recognizing what those symbols point to. Discern the body of the Lord in the bread and the wine. That's the one sense of the word body. But there's another important sense as well, and that is the body of Christ in terms of the people that are seated around the table. We, too, as a church, are the body of Christ. And in that sense, the Corinthians were not discerning the Lord's body because they were only thinking of themselves, filling their own bellies, not thinking of the rest of Christ's body, the other members around the table. So there's Christ's body in the bread and wine, and there's Christ's body in the people seated around the table, and that body must be discerned or recognized when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is for Christians, for all Christians, but it is also to be received in the right frame of mind, and that requires some self-examination. That's why we have that section in in the form for the Lord's Supper, a section devoted to self-examination, to make sure that we understand what we're doing when we come to the Lord's table. Now, of course, the point of that self-examination is not to, to sort of prevent sinners from coming to the Lord's table. Uh, that would obviously prevent all of us from coming to the Lord's table. We all come as sinners. The point of that self-examination is that we would recognize our sin, repent of it, and make sure that we are indeed trusting in Christ when we go to the table. And so the first fence around the table is simply a self-imposed fence. Every Christian who goes to the table ought to examine himself in accordance, of course, with, with his ability to make sure that he knows what he's doing and that, that his going there is not a, a walking contradiction. So that's the first fence. It's, it's self-imposed. And that's what the first question there in the Lord's Day, question 81, deals with. Who should come? And there it, it imposes this, this first fence. But is that self-examination enough? Should we, as a church, simply... Leave it up to individual Christians to decide whether or not they want to partake. The argument in favor of that position is that only the Lord knows the heart. And, and so who are we to judge a person's relationship with the Lord? Besides that, it's also Christ's table. It's important to remember that. It's not it's not a Canadian reform table, it's not my table, it's not the elders' table, it's Christ's table. And all, therefore, who belong to Christ do belong at that table. But what we find in Scripture is that Christ has given the church the responsibility to guard that table. The most obvious proof of that is that are, uh, Scripture teaches the practice of discipline and at its most basic level that's what discipline is it's, it's determining who who belongs at Christ's table and who is not welcome there if there's no uh, if you take out the the element of participation in the Lord's Supper there's no meat left to discipline that's where the rubber hits the road so to speak an example of this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, there was a man in the church in Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmother and apparently the Cor- Corinthian church was not only not dealing with the sin, but they were even proud of the fact that they had that kind of deviancy in their midst. And again, it it amazes you that that Paul addresses this church as as a church of of saints. Uh, It could only be who they are in Christ that that allows him to call them that. But Paul tells them, let him who has done this be removed from you. And again, in verse 7, using a, a Passover metaphor, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven among you that you may be a new lump. Once again, in verse 13, Purge the evil person from among you. Well, the obvious implication of that language is that they are to remove that person from membership in the church and therefore also from participation in the Lord's Supper. So we're not only commanded to examine ourselves ourselves, When we go to the Lord's Supper, there's that self-imposed fence. But the church is also given the responsibility to see to it that the supper is kept holy, to remove known sinners and hypocrites. Now, it's certainly true to an extent that, that only God knows the heart. But nevertheless, we can and we must discern a person's heart by their words and their actions. Paul specifically says the church is called to judge those within the church. He says in verse 12, are you not called to judge those inside the church? So the elders are given the responsibility to shepherd the church, to remove hypocrites from the church's membership and therefore also from the Lord's table. And that's not just an individual decision that any individual Christian can make. It may come across as, as offensive to some that, that the church would say, We need to know who you are before you come to the Lord's Supper, but that's the church's responsibility. And so the question then arises what do we do with respect to guests, visitors that come to the church? And especially when you're talking about visitors that you know do come from other churches. Well, it's a difficult question to answer because, again, we do have to remember that this is the Lord's table. It's not the Canadian Reformed table. And therefore, all who belong to the Lord do belong at this table. And we want all those who belong to the Lord to be able to come to the table. But the question regarding guests is, How do we know who they are? How do we know if they're genuine Christians? If we have a responsibility to keep the table holy, we need to know who they are. Now, we could just have a policy where we say a person that comes is innocent until proven guilty, so to speak. But that brings its own complications. For example, if a guest shows up who, who comments that he never goes to church, and yet he wants to go to the Lord's Supper should he be admitted? Or if a member comes from a cult like the Mormons and yet still feels that he belongs at the Lord's table, should he then be admitted? If we're to purge the evil from our midst with respect to our own membership, is it right then to welcome individuals whom we do not know or who who do not come to the church with any kind of testimony about their doctrine and life? Well, as a church, we've agreed that that's not okay. In the spirit of discerning the body, as Paul commands us to do, we need to recognize that not only those who belong to the body are, excuse me, we need to recognize that only those who belong to the body are welcomed at the Lord's table. If someone is not part of Christ's body, they do not belong at Christ's table. A walk through, through church history might, might also be helpful here. Uh, one of the earliest church fathers, Justin Martyr, described a typical worship service of that day uh, in, I believe, the, the third century, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps the second. Uh, and according to that account, the guests who, who did not come with any att- attestation from another church, they were actually sent out of the church during the Lord's Supper, it was considered that much of a private affair only for Christians. So the guests would sit through the sermon, and they could sit through the singing, but when it came time for the Lord's Supper, they were actually asked to leave the church building. Uh, that's how, how highly they regarded the Lord's Supper, as a meal that belongs only for Christians. And so for us as a church, when uh, when it comes to visitors in our church, We strive to obey, as unpopular as it is, a command that we do have from the Lord Jesus to keep the table for believers who show that they are believers by both their doctrine and their life. Uh, And so, as a result, we, we require an attestation. An attestation is simply a letter of testimony. There's no... A specific form that, that it needs to, to take. Different churches use different forms. But it's a, it's a letter from the church that says, yes, we, we know who this person is. He belongs to our membership, and, and we can testify that he or she is faithful in doctrine and conduct. It's a practice that goes back all the way to the early church. When, when someone visited from Ephesus to Rome, they would carry with them a letter of testimony from their church. The principle behind this is that those who love the Lord Jesus also always will attach themselves to his church as far as they're able to do so. Uh, You can see this already back in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 people are baptized, and in the very first moments, the very next verses, it speaks of how they devoted themselves to one another. They came together, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer they immediately attached themselves to the church and this and therefore that also means they became members of that church and membership is very obviously implied some people would say why can't I just go to a church? Why do I have to be a member? Where's the biblical text that says I have to become a member of a church? But membership is implied in the very concept of, of discipline. How do you submit to your authorities, to, to the leaders, as Hebrews 13 says, if you're not a member of a church? How, do you, how are the elders supposed to discipline, to exercise discipline, if there's no such thing as church membership? And so by requiring attestations, what we do is we recognize in the first place that every Christian ought to belong to a church. There's, there's no such thing as a, as a simply me and Jesus Christian, or at least if, if such a Christian exists, they're in disobedience to the command of God to be a part of his church. They're called to join themselves to the church and to put themselves under the care of the elders, and so by requiring attestations, we're not making the church smaller. We're acknowledging that the church is much bigger than simply ourselves, our own congregation, and even indeed bigger than our, our own federation. It's why we form sister church relationships with other, with other churches and other federations. We acknowledge them to be faithful churches, and we, we form relationships so that we can give these letters of testimony. Now, there is certainly something inconvenient about the policy. It can be frustrating sometimes. A member shows up and they forgot to bring their attestation. And as a result, they do sit out on on the Lord's Supper. And and that's why it is important for us in, in an effort to keep the lord's command here to remind our brothers and sisters when they come to visit to to remember to to bring their attestations it's a biblical practice and it goes back to the days of the early church this can also sometimes mean that that someone comes from a genuine christian church that we can recognize as a christian church and yet one with whom we simply haven't developed any relationship. You think of the free Reformed churches, for example, that the Canadian Reformed churches have, have long recognized to be a true church, have long desired relationship, and yet they they do things differently, and they don't want that, that sister church relationship. That's part of the, the reality that we're forced to deal with, and because we honor the Lord's command here, that, that can make things uncomfortable. Sometimes a member comes that we can recognize it's from a true church and is a true Christian, and yet they do not come with a letter of testimony. That's not a, it's not a denial of the Catholicity of the church. We recognize that the Christian church extends beyond this federation and even beyond the sister church relationships that we have, but for the time being, we live in an imperfect and broken situation, and so we do our best to acknowledge where the church of God exists and to work with the hand that we're dealt, and so when a Christian does come to our church and, and finds that they cannot participate because they don't have an attestation, it's not because we're calling their faith into question, it 's only because we 're striving to be faithful to the command that we 've been given from Christ and because we work with the hand that we 're dealt if, if they come from a church with whom we 're not sister with whom we don 't have that relationship then there 's no way around it. That practice of ours is certainly out of line with with most of modern Christian practice, but it 's not at all out of line with the historic practice of the christian church and if we search scripture, we believe that it's in keeping with uh, the command of Christ. And that ultimately is what matters most. Not whether we stand out from the crowd or or have practices that, that look strange to outsiders, but are we keeping the command of Christ? And so in conclusion then, we remember that the table is the Lord's. Uh, those who belong to him, all of them sinners, are to be welcomed. And, and Christ himself invites them into his grace. No sin is, is so great that they cannot come. And yet, they also must come in repentance and in faith. He, he turns away any who would come, who refuse to acknowledge their sin or repent from it, or those who, who are content to live in their sin or, or to lie about their sin. There are people that Christ refuses from his table. And if they insist on coming, the church has the responsibility to enforce that refusal. And, and that's why then Christ has commanded us to exercise church discipline to the best of our ability. This may be scandalous to much of our culture, but we're called to be faithful to God's word. In the end, we should remember that it is a tremendous blessing to be members of of a church that loves Christ enough to obey him and loves us enough to tell us the truth and to call us to obedience to him as well. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 141, stanzas 2 through 4.